Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Also, if you find your place in Mark chapter 1, we'll be looking back a little bit earlier in, in Mark's gospel. Hometown boy, Mark chapter 6. Sometimes some really big people come from some really small towns. Matthew McConaughey is from Uvalde, Texas, population of 16,000 people. He's the youngest son of an oil pipe supply business owner and a substitute teacher in the town. Merrill Street, well, from Summit, New Jersey, home of 21,000 residents, is about the same number of Academy Awards that she has won. <laughs> Julia Roberts, born October the 28th, 1967 in Smyrna, Georgia. She loved animals all of her life and wanted to be a veterinarian when she grew up. Demi Moore, we're getting a little closer to home now, Roswell, New Mexico, born November the 11th, 1962. Macomb, Mississippi is famous or infamous for Britney Spears. Her singing debut occurred at age five when she sang, What Child Is This? at her kindergarten graduation. Or how about Brad Pitt, Shawnee, Oklahoma, though raised in Springfield, Missouri, where he attended the Kickaboo High School. He once moved refrigerators for a living. Brad Pitt, ladies, once removed refrigerators for a living. Makes you want to order a new refrigerator, doesn't it? There you go. And then there was a day when Patrick Dempsey, that is McDreamy, wasn't always so dreamy. The Lewiston, Maine native placed third in his age group and a national jugglers convention as a teen. He wanted to go to clown college. He wanted to be a professional clown when he grew up. Population 38,000 in his hometown. Oprah Winfrey is from a city I can't even pronounce. Kosciuszko, Mississippi, population 7,372. She is not from Chicago, do not be fooled. She's from Mississippi. Josh Hutcherson from the Hunger Games is born in Union, Kentucky. Well, it has a current population of 5,300. In 79. A lot of big people come from a, a lot of little towns. In fact, there's one little town in Montana, Ismay, Montana. They voted and changed their name to Joe. Therefore, they are Joe Montana after the NFL quarterback, of course. The vote to change the Ismay's name back to, to, to Joe Montana. Well, it passed unanimous, unanimously. 21 votes yes and zero votes no. It would have been 22 votes, but one of the residents of, I should say now, Joe Montana was out of town at the time of the vote. Yes, there are some times that these little cities are so proud of their famous residents, but not Nazareth. I'm afraid to say Nazareth wasn't so proud of Jesus. In fact, you look in chapter 6 and verse 5, he could do few miracles there because of their unbelief. He marveled at their lack of faith. In Mark's fifth chapter, Jesus is on a roll. He cast demons out of a demoniac who lived among the tombstones, causing a whole herd of swine, 2,000 of them to take a high dive into the sea. 
In another instance in chapter 5, there's a lady who's had a hemorrhage for 12 years. The doctors could bring her no relief. She reaches out in faith and touches, says if I could touch but the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she did, and she was. Then there's the miracle of all miracles with Jairus' daughter. 12-year-old girl was dead and Jesus calls her from the dead back to life and gives a 12-year-old girl back to her parents. Don't be afraid, Jesus said to her father, only believe. You see, in chapter 5, Jesus is on a roll. He is casting out the demons. He's even raising the dead. He's healing the sick. And so we say we can't imagine all that he'll be able to do when he comes to chapter 6 in his own hometown. We'll go back a chapter earlier to Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, is there anything Jesus can't do? Hush, be still, he commands the sea. And it becomes as smooth as silk. He exhorts the demons to jump into the depths of the sea. Why, even touching the hem of his garment can cure your calamity. And then command of commands, little girl, I say to you, arise. And even the, the dead sit up and acknowledge the powers of this rabbi from Nazareth. Yes, when you read Mark's gospel for the first time and you read in chapter 4 that he can still the storm, he can rebuke the weather like an unruly child, and then you see in chapter 5 he can raise the dead, you begin thinking to yourself, if we're going to Nazareth next, there is no limit to what he'll be able to do amongst those who know him the best. What miracle is left after Jesus has raised the dead? If Jesus can do those kinds of miracles amongst the strangers, you say to yourself, no telling, unlimited the potential when he gets to his own hometown. If a weary woman has enough faith to believe that simply touching his garment, the hem of his garment will make her well, can you imagine the, the great faith that's going to welcome him when he becomes the hometown hero? Not. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. And he went out from there, and he came to his own hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is always on the move. He's traveling from this little town to that little village. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 38. You'll see the plan that Jesus had to reach all those communities with the message that, that he was the Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 38 and 39. And he said to them, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. He went into their synagogues throughout Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Now back to chapter 6. Jesus comes to his own hometown. His idea was to go through all the villages and all the towns, all the little hamlets in Galilee, that they all may hear the message. In fact, several times he has to escape the pressing crowds in these early chapters in Mark. Every town wants to keep Jesus for their own, to rename their town after this rabbi, like Joe Montana, but, but not so in Nazareth. 
He goes to his own hometown, his Patras. It is the usual word in Greek for town is polis, but this is hometown, Patras, father town. You hear patriarch in that word. He goes to his own father town, the town of his family. And they're amazed. Look at verse 2. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many of the listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given him that such miracles are performed by his hands? They asked. By his hands means they don't believe that this hometown boy can do all those marvelous miracles, casting out demons and raising the dead. The implication here is it can't be the power of this rabbi, but rather that he is a conduit for another power. In fact, it sounds way too much like the religious authorities that said that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of the devil. That Jesus is some conduit for something supernatural, even implied something evil. Well, turn back again to chapter 1, this time to, to verse 27. Mark 1, 27. I want you to notice the early questions. When he's doing the miracles in the other towns in Galilee, and they were all amazed. And they declared among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Yes, the questions begin to mount up in Mark's gospel. And the first question is, What is this teaching? What is this new word with authority that even the demons obey him? Then turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 7. The first question is, what is this new teaching? In chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus claims to have the ability to forgive sins. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Back to chapter 6. So the first question in the Mark and Gospel is, what kind of teaching is this that has the authority even to cast out demons? And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He says, your sins are forgiven you, and only God can forgive sins. And so now they want to know who he is. If only God can forgive sins, then who is this who's given pardon to the people? So what is this teaching, and who is this man? By the time we get to Mark chapter 6, the question is not so much what or who, but now the question is where, and from where is his power? He's a conduit from the power from where? Jesus is in his old stomping ground, and the townsfolk believe they know all there is to know about him. They know his family background. Look at verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't this, we know his brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Hey, his sisters, we know them too. And look at verse 3. They are offended. They are offended that this hometown boy has so much power. We know this guy. He can't be teaching like that. He can't be doing miracles like that. 
Now, isn't that that carpenter? My plow was broken, perhaps one said, and, and he's the one that repaired it. He built a set of yokes for me. And another one thought to himself, he fashioned my cupboards, one woman said, whispering to another. And that cross beam for my shop, he's the guy that put it in, that strong beam. He had done it all for them. Window lattices and doors and benches and cupboards and stools and yokes and plows. He was the carpenter in Nazareth and they recognized him and they knew his mother and they knew his brothers. Jacob and Joseph and Judah and Simon, all of his brothers have patriarchal names. James equals Jacob, so the first one named after Jacob and then the others after Jacob's sons. We know his family, they've got the usual names in the town. And isn't it interesting? They call him Mary's son. In that day, in that culture, in that time, it would be unthinkable to identify a child, especially a boy, by his mother. You would have said, that's Joseph's son. It may imply, and I think it does, that Joseph's already dead, but it may imply more than that. Even a, even a dead father would be named for his son. So unusual, even with Joseph dead, he's still Joseph's son. But you remember in John's gospel, they whispered to Jesus, we know who our father is. We're not sure, sure who your daddy is. There's a, a question of his even legitimacy and his birth. A question on Mary cast by naming him after his mother. We know him. We know this carpenter. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. This is just a hometown boy. They imagine to themselves that they have pegged this preacher. They know him too well. He can't do things like this. And you read Mark, you realize it's really an irony here in the gospel. They say he's Mary's son. But he's not really even Mary's son in Mark's gospel. In fact, the very beginning of Mark, we're told in chapter 1 and verse 1 that Jesus is the Son of God. And then again in, in chapter 1 and verse 11 at the baptism, there's a voice from heaven that thunders, Thou art my beloved Son, and whom I'm well pleased. Throughout these early chapters of Mark, he is the Son of God, not so much the Son of God. Of Mary. It happens again in chapter 9, Jesus, the Son of God. It happens again in chapter 15, Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, you remember that Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, Behold my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother or she is my sister. They don't really know who his real brothers are. At that point, his brothers are those who follow him and are obedient to the will of his father. But they think they know him. They think they know him real well. But they don't know who his real brothers are. They don't know his real lineage and miraculous birth. And just when they think they know it all, we learn in Mark's gospel that they know nothing about the Lord. Oddly enough, they weren't put off by what he taught. They don't object to his theology. They are put off by where did he get the power? The question is not so much what, but where did he get this power? Where did he get this teaching from? They are put off 
by his familiarity more than his teaching. Their question is this. How can someone that we know is absolutely ordinary do the extraordinary like this? Where is he getting this from? In fact, you remember the joke, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, the Nazareth folk don't even think anything good can come out of Nazareth. They'd bought into the old jokes about their little hamlet of a town. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How can the rabbi who cast out demons and raises the dead be the carpenter who fixed my plow? Now it is true that the expert at the conference is usually the one paid the most to travel the furthest. And just because he's out of town or she's out of town, they get a bigger fee because they're now the expert, right? You've flown in people before at your business or training episodes and they come in you think we flew them that far to tell us what we already know but people have a habit of doing that they had that kind of thinking going on here how can the hometown boy who lives right here he's a local yokel we know him too well we know his family in fact he's a manual laborer in fact there's an ancient Jewish writing Sirach 38 it says the wisdom of the scribe depends on the leisure to study. While a laborer, like a carpenter, is too much engaged in sweat to become wise, the laborer works night and day and only talks about his skill and his task and his work. And therefore, people like Jesus, says the old Jewish literature, laborers do not get to sit at the judge's seat, nor do they, do they understand the decisions of the court. They cannot expound discipline or judgment. They are not among the rulers. They are offended that this manual labor, skilled as he is, that they have pegged as a nobody is doing the miracles of God, the miracles of a somebody. Jesus, verse 4, notice he gives them the old saw. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and among his own household. Plutarch has said the most sensible and wisest people are little cared for in their own hometown. You're right, Plutarch. And for the first time in the gospel, did you notice what's, what crept into the text? A prophet, Jesus said. Now Jesus, for the first time, the gospel of Mark is labeled as a prophet. He comes like a prophet out of nowhere. He rebukes like a prophet. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's rejected like a prophet, like John the baptizer before. He too will experience a martyrdom. He's called a prophet, rejected by the people, receiving his martyrdom as the prophets do. But there's more to it than that. The rejection of Jesus by his own patris, his own hometown, his own father town, is a foreshadowing of the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people. You see that? This town, his own people, his father town rejects him. And that is a clue as a reader that as we go through the saga of this story, that his own people, he came into his own and his own did not receive him, Scripture tells us. 
Yes, they reject Jesus because they, they think they know everything about him, but the reality is they know nothing about him. In Mark's gospel, the ones who are closest to Jesus are the ones who miss the miracles. That terrifies me. That should terrify you too. Am I in danger of being so close to Jesus that I cannot see? I, like the, the townsfolk in Nazareth, I grew up with Jesus. I guess Jesus was one of the first words that I ever heard. I was on the cradle roll in the church. I was raised with Jesus right by my side, his name on my lips. I knew his story so well. I devoted a lifetime to learning and listening about Jesus. I'm a whole lot like the folk in Nazareth. Are you? While I would have it no other way than being raised in the church and repeat the pattern with my children, now being repeated by children's choice with my grandchildren, are we the ones that are so close that we are in danger of not seeing? If I'd have been there, what I have noticed, what would I have noticed about Jesus? A lot of people watched Jesus through his ministry and they saw different things. One guy says he's a glutton. Another one says this guy's nothing but a wine bibber. He'd accept anybody's invitation to go to their house. His friends were the richest of tax gatherers and the poorest of prostitutes. He was a joy to be with. Yet some people said he had a devil and other people said he was the son of God. And he ate and he drank and he got lonely had to sit at the well and ask for some water. What would I have noticed? What would I have thought about Jesus? A guy who could shout at the weather like he was correcting a child. This man who could make the lame men walk and the blind men see and exercise demons. And yet they scratched their heads flabbergasted and they said, Hey, that's, that's Mary's boy. I know his brother's. His sisters, they're in our village. Where, where is this coming from? They ask. And yet other people heard the same message from the same rabbi and they flocked to him so much so in other places he had to be pushed out in a boat so the people would not overcome him so they could gather around the, the seashore and listen to his words. Mark 4.11 says, and he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. His words were short and precise and terrible and full of refreshment, and the people were taken by him, and yet he didn't even have enough money to, to pay his taxes, and he had to send Peter fishing to find the tax money. This Jesus who, who talked in parables about a woman who scolded the judge until he gave in, and a, a king who plunges into an ill-fated war, and a single woman who loses one penny and just sweeps the floor until she finds it, or about a father who scans her 
horizon every morning looking for his wayward boy. This rabbi talked like that. Yes, what would we have thought about Jesus? The one who put so much emphasis on God's grace and yet never diluted the holiness of God. This Jesus who claimed to be God, and even when the guards came to seize him, they returned back empty-handed and reported to the authorities, no one's ever spoken like this before. We didn't touch him. We were afraid. This one who says he has the power to forgive sins, and if you tear down the temple in three days, he will build it back. Where would I have been in the story? Where would you have been in the story? Are we in the story today like those residents of Nazareth in danger of being so close that somehow we cannot see the forest for the trees? Are we in danger of being so familiar with Jesus? Thinking that we know everything. And the reality is, we know nothing. What are we going to make of this Jesus? A terrible thing happens in verse 5. And he could do no miracle there except he laid hands upon a few sick and healed them. And then verse 6. He wondered at their unbelief. There was so much cynicism about this hometown boy that no one brought their sick. He could have healed all that were brought. They didn't believe, but those who did bring, they were healed. And Jesus, who had done so many wonders in the cities of Galilee, he sits and he looks and he, 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 he is in wonderment at their disbelief of the power of God that's coming through him and from him. Has the Lord ever wondered at your disbelief? Are we in danger of limiting the Lord? I'm amazed every time someone who's been raised as a Christian with the gospel of the apostles goes for another world religion. How can someone lose the faith of their youth, that is faith in Christ, for some foolishness? Are they so familiar with the stories of Jesus that it breeds contempt like Nazareth? Is his story for them become humdrum? They're looking for something new and fantastic? Are we too close sometimes to see who this rabbi might be? Will we join the citizens of Nazareth in saying, eh, I know his mom. I know his family. He, he can't do that. Jesus has been around us a long time. Can he really make a difference in your life still? Will we take the attitude of those in Nazareth? Will we miss the blessing of God? This God who casts out demons, this God who commands the sea, this God who raises the dead, will he do wonders among us or will he be in wonderment at our disbelief? We need to pledge ourselves individually and as a church family in this new year and we'll pray for the sick in a way that leaves room for God to heal them. Prayers of faith. We'll pray for the lost as if we can leave room for them to find Jesus and call him Lord. 
that we'll stop trying to control things so much in our own lives and let go and let God be who God is in our life and let God be who God is in our church? Do you have eyes of faith? Eyes that see? Do you have the kind of faith of Mark 5 that can reach out and touch the hem of the garment and be healed? Or have you sadly been around Jesus so long that you've got the cold eyes of cynicism? So you yourself are by the preaching of the gospel, you're sitting in the synagogue at Nazareth today. And Jesus is teaching today. And so you, what do you say? Let us pray. Oh God, forgive us when we think we can put you in our hip pocket. That we know you so well, we want to control you like some grand genie that we fell to the wonderment of the power and the grace that comes through your Son. And maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to come forward and begin this new year right on the threshold by proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Maybe someone from Nazareth who's been in the church for a long time and never made it her own or never made it his own. Today is their day. Maybe there's others who need to come and be a part of this great church. As your spirit speaks, may people respond. Amen.